Hello and welcome to the Lazy Book Club podcast, the book club for those who don't want to read or leave the house. My name is Matt Gonzalez. It's David Cox. <laughs> and I'm Josh Matheson. And this week we are looking at chapter three of The 39 Steps. Now, yeah. this is something like the literary adventure? Innkeeper. Oh, Innkeeper. You, you pretty much got all the words. The adventure of the literary uh. <laughs> So we think this might be a librarian. We're not quite sure. We will find out. I don't know if it is. No? That's not my bet. If we're better, it it's Fuji is it like is it like the book club in Shoreditch where it's like book themed? I literally just think it's someone who runs an inn who likes books. Okay, I don't know. a well-read innkeeper. You think a well-read you know, for that? Yeah, okay. really like well-versed <laughs> and like just quotes books all the time. Like, <laughs> what you after, mate? Completely <laughs> wasted. Well, last week Richard Hannay finally managed to kind of get out of his house and away from the people who killed scudder because then he was worried that whoever killed scudder was still watching the house had obviously not found scudder's little book so maybe yeah. might come back for that so he thought right i'm gonna have to get out and i've got to get out without them seeing where i'm going so he managed to con the milkman into giving him his coat and his hat and his milk and then he ran around the corner <laughs> dumped the whole costume left the milkman completely in the lurch and then ran to the train station and he is right now on a train bound for scotland if i'm right Yes, that's uh, right, isn't it? Galloway. Galloway? Galloway. I want to say he's good. How rude. Galloway. Oh, Galloway. <laughs> <laughs> so he's currently on a train. He's found Scudder's little black book and yeah. he's left his old life behind him. He's trimmed his moustache. He's, he's gone incognito and he's out in the world with an assassination plot to foil. Yeah, and he jumped on at the last minute in first class but then immediately got demoted to third. Yeah. <laughs> He's definitely left his old bougie life behind him now. He should have got a rail car. So he might have uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> third off, isn't it? Well, should we just dive straight in then and find out what's waiting for Richard Hannay when he gets to the other end? Chapter three. The Adventure of the Literary Innkeeper. I had a solemn time travelling north that day. It was fine May weather, with a hawthorn flowering on every hedge, and I asked myself why, when I was still a free man, I had stayed on in London and not got the good of this heavenly country. I didn't dare face the restaurant car, but I got a luncheon basket at Leeds and shared it with the fat woman. <laughs> I bet he regretted that. He's going to let him nothing. <laughs> he, got, he got the crusts. She's like, are you going to eat that? And he's like, I am literally eating it. <laughs> I'm literally eating it, Agatha. Leave me alone. It's in my Does mouth. Does that mean they stopped? <laughs> they stopped at Leeds, and he had ample enough time because they have to like restock. So you can literally get off and like buy a luncheon basket, which sounds great, by the mm. way. Yeah, yeah. Like, just just, he, just he, buy a picnic. He jumped off, went to visit Upper Crust, and then hopped back on again. Yeah, it's better. Just like I, I got a sausage roll. Is it because it's a steam train? They'd have to fill up the coal. I guess everything's yeah, yeah. Just a bit slower, isn't it? Well, he did say it was going to take him from wherever the train was, like seven o'clock in the morning until late afternoon to get to Scotland, oh, which is quite a long time, isn't it, really? And we think the trains are bad now. It takes a yeah. fraction of that time now. Yeah. <laughs> we really do take modern life for granted, don't we? <laughs> also, I got the morning's papers with news about starters for the Derby and the beginning of the cricket season and some paragraphs about how Balkan affairs were settling down and a British squadron was going to Kiel. 
When I had done with them, I got out Scudder's little black pocket-book and studied it. It was pretty well filled with jottings, chiefly figures, though now and then a name was printed in. For example, I found the words Hofgard, Loonville, and Avocado. Pretty often. <laughs> I was about to say, I would love it if he opened the book and it was just the rantings of a lunatic in there. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Just like crayon drawings of sunsets done really bad and stick figures. And... Like, there's pictures of eyes and stuff, like <laughs> lizard, lizard people. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. I think it would have been great if it was just his little, like, like Sudoku book and it was just, he just had it for to when he was a bit bored and there's nothing, nothing important in there at all. I was also saying Little Black Book is obviously the thing that people usually keep their past conquests in. Oh, so well, it was just like well. this list of all these women <laughs> like in there, and their phone Avocado. numbers and their rating out of 10. <laughs> Avocado, oh. six out of 10. <laughs> she was rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I found the words Hofgard, Loonville and Avocado pretty often and especially the word Pavia. Now, I was certain that Scudder never did anything without a reason and I was pretty sure that there was a cipher in all this. That is a subject which has always interested me, and I did a bit at it myself once as intelligence officer at Delagoa Bay during the Boer War. I have a head for things like chess and puzzles, and I used to reckon myself pretty good at finding out ciphers. This one looked like the numerical kind, where sets of figures correspond to the letters of the alphabet, but any fairly shrewd man can find a clue to that sort after an hour's work or two, and I didn't think Scudder would have been content with anything so easy. So I fastened on the printed words, but you can make a pretty good numerical cipher if you have a keyword which gives you the sequence of the letters. I tried for hours, but none of the words answered. Then I fell asleep and woke at Dumfries just in time to bundle out and get into the slow Galloway train. There was a man on the platform whose looks I didn't like, but he never glanced at me, and when I caught sight of myself in the mirror of an automatic machine, I didn't wonder. With my brown face, old tweeds, and my slouch, I was the very model of one of the hill farmers who were crowding into the third-class carriages. I travelled with half a dozen in an atmosphere of shag and clay pipes. They had come from the weekly market, and their mouths were full of prices. I heard accounts of how the lambing had gone up at Cairn, and the Duke, and a dozen other mysterious waters. Above half the men had lunched heavily, and were highly flavoured with whisky, so they took no notice of me. We rumbled slowly into a land of little wooded glens, and then to a great wide moorland place, gleaming with locks, with high blue hills showing northwards. That, to me, had to be the politest way of saying the men were all absolutely happy. They were all steaming. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most PC way ever of saying that. They were highly flavoured with whiskey. Highly <laughs> <laughs> I think it's when something's flavoured by something, it means that you can smell it on it. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like when yeah, something's yeah. like infused with like truffle oil or something, you can, it's like leaking from it. It's sweating yeah. it. Like, it's, so you know, they've been hitting that whiskey hard if you can smell it on them. But it's comforting to know 
that you know back in the day they d- they'd have a nice whiskey after a big picnic a basket mm. picnic basket from Leeds or wherever um, <laughs> and and in these days we go and buy some of the pre-made cocktails from Marks and Spencers so yeah it's a lovely yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> porn star martini but it looks yeah. nice so. beautiful in a little can I, I, I am enjoying yeah. some of his turns of phrase though like flavored with whiskey and mm. um, what was the other one that I liked. Oh, their mouths were full of prices, like stuff like that. It's quite quite nice language to to read. Yeah, yeah. It's it's nice as well because you can see that he's drawing on his own experience as an intelligence officer for the civil service. Like he yeah. worked in intelligence over yeah. the war, so he was probably working with codes and ciphers and mm. you know and all that kind of stuff like in his professional life. So it's kind of cool getting to see somebody who knows about that stuff writing about it. About five o'clock, the carriage had emptied. And I was left alone, as I'd hoped. I got out at the next station, a little place whose name I scarcely noted, set right in the heart of a bog. It reminded me of one of those forgotten little stations in the Karoo. An old station master was digging in his garden, and with his spade over his shoulder, sauntered to the train, took charge of a parcel, and went back to his potatoes. A child of ten received my ticket, and I emerged on a white road that straggled over the brown moor. It was a gorgeous spring evening, with every hill showing as clear as a cut amethyst. The air had the queer, rooty smell of bogs, but it was as fresh as mid-ocean, and it had the strangest effect on my spirits. I actually felt light-hearted. I might have been a boy out for a spring holiday tramp, instead of a man of 37, very much wanted by the police. I I was just going to say, I've completely... Obviously, he has disappeared, leaving a dead body in his house. So he's he right. Yeah, he is probably wanted by the police and stage, yeah. the other people. So he's, he's been hunted on two fronts here. And that, that only just occurred to me mm. that, yeah, obviously, if there's a dead body in someone's living room, you're going to want to talk to the person who owns the apartment. Absolutely. I think if they were doing a uh, they were doing a modern adaptation, they'd have they'd have the one where the the Metropolitan Police like bang through the door, and there's just the milkman just like sat there. Yeah. Like, oh! oh, that's the point. The milkman's in his apartment as well. So is he like just gone? Yeah, don't go in that room. And I the love milkman's the probably still there. I love. Yeah. I think he's still waiting there, jacketless, mm. hatless, just going. Oh, I'll be back in a minute. You know he's snooping, though, because if you've just been left alone oh, in a yeah. stranger's apartment and he's just walked away and you're like, okay, 10 minutes is gone. Is he coming back? I'd start looking around and you'd just see a dead body <laughs> in the middle of the living room. You would go run, run a mile, probably. Yeah. That's true, yeah. I felt just as I used to feel when I was starting for a big trek on a frosty morning on the high veld. If you believe me, I swung along that road whistling. There was no plan of campaign in my head only just to go on and on in this blessed, honest-smelling hill country, for every mile put me in a better humour with myself. In a roadside planting, I cut a walking stick of hazel, and presently struck off the highway, up a bypath, which followed the glen of a brawling stream. I reckoned that I was still far ahead of any pursuit, and for that night might please myself. It was some hours since I had tasted food, and I was getting very hungry when I came to a herd's cottage set in a nook beside a waterfall. A brown-faced woman was standing by the door, and greeted me with the kindly shyness of the moorland places. When I asked for a night's lodging, 
She said I was welcome to the bed in the loft, and very soon she set before me a hearty meal of ham and eggs, scones, and thick sweet milk. At the darkening her man came in from the hills, a lean giant, who in one step covered as much ground as three paces of ordinary mortals. They asked me no questions, for they had the perfect breeding of all dwellers in the wilds, but I could see that they set me down as a kind of dealer, and I took some trouble to confirm their view. I spoke a lot about cattle, of which my host knew little, and I picked up from him a good deal about the local Galloway markets, which I tucked away in my memory for future use. At ten I was nodding in my chair, and the bed in the loft received a weary man who never opened his eyes till five o'clock set the little homestead a-going once more. They refused any payment, and by six I had breakfasted and was striding southwards again. My notion was to return to the railway line a station or two farther on than the place where I had alighted yesterday to double back. I reckoned that that was the safest way, for the police would naturally assume that I was always making further from London in the direction of some western port. I thought I had still a good bit of a start, for as I reasoned, it would take some hours to fix the blame on me, and several more to identify the fellow who got on board the train at St Pancras. It was the same jolly, clear spring weather, and I simply could not contrive to feel careworn. Indeed, I was in better spirits than I'd been for months. Over the long ridge of moorland I took my road, skirting the side of a high hill, which the herd had called Cairnsmore of Fleet. Nesting curlews and plovers were crying everywhere, and the links of green pasture by the streams were dotted with young lambs. All the slackness of the past months was slipping from my bones, and I stepped out like a four-year-old. By and by I came to a swell of moorland which dipped to the vale of a little river, and a mile away in the heather I saw the smoke of a train. The station, when I reached it, proved to be ideal for my purpose. The moor surged up around it, and left room only for the single line, the slender siding, a waiting room, an office, the station master's cottage, and a tiny yard of gooseberries and sweet William. There seemed no road to it from anywhere, and to increase the desolation the waves of a tarn lapped on their grey granite beach half a mile away. I waited in the deep heather till I saw the smoke of an east-going train on the horizon. Then I approached the tiny booking office and took a ticket for Dumfries. The only occupants of the carriage were an old shepherd and his dog, a wall-eyed brute that I mistrusted. The man was asleep, and on the cushions beside him was that morning's Scotsman. Eagerly I seized on it, for I fancied it would tell me something. There were two columns about the Portland Place murder, as it was called, my man Paddock had given the alarm and had the milkman arrested. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, talk about wrong place, wrong time. Right? Poor milkman. He probably doesn't have a clue what's going on. He's probably just sitting there with his going, this was not worth it in the, the head. pound that I was yeah. giving. I like to imagine he's still got like a glass bottle of milk in his hand just at the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on. 
Oh dear, the poor fellow. Milk float still outside. It's got it's got like fifteen tickets on it. Mm. <laughs> I do feel like he's so giving he must the have police... literally waited there the whole time. Yeah, until until his servant came. The thing is, you remember he did say he was like Paddock turns up at this time. The the milkman turns up like an hour before, so he was like, "I can catch the milkman." The milkman stayed there until Paddock's gone. There, Paddock's walking on. Who are you? Why are you in the apartment? Why is there a dead body in the apartment? Arrest him. So you kind of get what's happened. But um, I do think that like Hane is giving the police way too much credit in terms of how quickly they'll track him down. I mean, this was before CCTV. Before all that stuff, like you really think anyone's going to know? Probably not many eyewitnesses. A random guy, yeah, a random guy running yeah. through a station and getting on a train, like that happens for every train, most likely. Sure. Well, I, don't, I don't feel like loads of people know Hannah, like around the around the place. Like, well, yeah, they, he doesn't seem to have any friends. Otherwise, he would be so bored. If they speak to a neighbour, they'd be like, "Oh, yeah, um, who lives there? Who? Yeah, uh, yeah, like I, I think he's got brown hair, but like the only link to him is that the milkman go, "Well, hang on, the guy who lives here took my." jacket and milk and disappeared so that does look suspicious and would move the suspicion probably onto someone else because you're like well i've been paid unless the policemen are really lazy which they have been in the past and they go oh do you know what it's just easier to pin it on this guy he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time yeah but even <laughs> if they found where he, you know that he like he took off the jacket and the milk and like threw it somewhere he stashed yeah it. even if they found that like it'll be really hard to then go okay where did this person go next oh yeah they won't find hannah from that but it will at least clear the milkman of yeah, the murder true. poor devil it looked as if the latter had earned his sovereign hardly. But for me, he'd been cheap at the price, for he seemed to have occupied the police for the better part of the day. In the latest news, I found a further instalment of the story. The milkman had been released, I read, and the true criminal, about whose identity the police were reticent, was believed to have got away from London by one of the northern lines. There was a short note about me as the owner of the flat, I guess the police had stuck that in as a clumsy contrivance to persuade me that I was unsuspected. There was nothing else in the paper. Nothing about foreign politics or Carolides, or the things that had interested Scudder. I laid it down and found that we were approaching the station at which I had got out yesterday. The potato-digging stationmaster had been gingered up into some activity, for the west-going train was waiting to let us pass, and from it descended three men who were asking him questions. I supposed that they were the local police who had been stirred up by Scotland Yard and had traced me as far as this one-horse siding. Sitting well back in the shadow, I watched them carefully. One of them had a book and took down notes. The old potato digger seemed to have turned peevish, but the child who had collected my ticket was talking volubly. All the party looked out across the moor where the white road departed. I hoped they were going to take up my tracks there. As we moved away from that station, my companion woke up. He fixed me with a wandering glance, kicked his dog viciously, and inquired where he was. Clearly, he was very drunk. And then he speaks, and it's it's written as, as, a, as a Scots dialect, I think. Oh, okay. So... So do you want to do, do anything um, else with groundskeeper that? Groundskeeper Willie. <laughs> Who? What? Groundskeeper Simpsons Groundskeeper Willie. Oh, oh, he's sort of like a I really gruff... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it quite Billy Connolly? Yeah. 
I know he's done it, obviously, to make this book more exciting, but there's absolutely no way that police would have tracked him down that quickly in this time. Absolutely no way. Could you imagine how many interviews and how many people they'd have to check? No CCTV, no nothing, to just find out what train he'd gotten on and what station he'd gotten off. Like, you'd never track all those people down in a day on that train line. You just wouldn't. They'd literally have to have police at every station along every line that went north. That's what comes of being a teetotaler. He observed. I mean, that sounds more like Fat Bastard from Austin Powers, but I'm all yeah. for it. <laughs> okay, great. Doesn't I'll, matter. Just, I'll just be him then. He observed in bitter regret. I expressed my surprise that in him I should have met a blue ribbon stalwart. Aye, but I'm a strong teetotaler, he said pugnaciously. I took the pledge last Martinmas and have the touch a drop of whiskey since then. <laughs> Not even at Hogmanay, though I was sir tempty. He swung his heels up on the seat and burrowed a frowsy head into the cushions. That's a get, he moaned. A heed better than hellfire, and twain looking different ways for a Sabbath. What did it? I asked. A drink the car brandy? Being a teetotaler, I keep it off the whiskey. But I was nip-nipping a day at a sprandy, and I doubt I'll no be real for a fortnight. So hang on, he says he's a teetotaler because he's, he's not drinking brandy. whiskey, he's drinking brandy. <laughs> yeah. He's like, in Scotland just means I don't drink whiskey. <laughs> I'm not a drug addict. I don't take heroin, I just take cocaine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. His voice died away into a splutter, and sleep once more laid its heavy hand on him. My plan had been to get out at some station down the line, but the train suddenly gave me a better chance, for it came to a standstill at the end of a culvert, which spanned a brawling porter-coloured river. I looked out and saw that every carriage window was closed, and no human figure appeared in the landscape. So I opened the door, and dropped quickly into the tangle of hazels which edged the line. It would have been all right, but for that infernal dog. Under the impression that I was decamping with its master's belongings, it started to bark, and all but got me by the trousers. This woke up the herd, who stood bawling at the carriage door in the belief that I had committed suicide. I crawled through the thicket, reached the edge of the stream, and in cover of the bushes, put a hundred yards or so behind me. Then from my shelter, I peered back, and saw the guard and several passengers gathered round the open carriage door and staring in my direction. I could not have made a more public departure if I had left with a bulger and a brass band. Sorry, bugler. I need to do that again. <laughs> a bulger! <laughs> bulger! God, just a leaving guy. a room with a bulger suggests something completely <laughs> different. That's not what I had intended. It meant to a saucy show. <laughs> Small dyslexic moment. Uh, what type of train was it? <laughs> Jumped off with a massive bulger. He was just really attracted to the brandy guy. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew that was? Oh no! <laughs> Who brilliant. knew? Go again. I could not have made a more public departure if I'd left with a bugler and a brass band. Happily, the drunken herd provided a diversion. 
He and his dog, which was attached by a rope to his waist, suddenly cascaded out of the carriage, landed on their heads on the track, and rolled some way down the bank towards the water. In the rescue which followed, the dog bit somebody, for I could hear the sound of hard swearing. Presently they had forgotten me, and when, after a quarter of a mile's crawl, I ventured to look back, the train had started again and was vanishing in the cutting. I was in a wide semicircle of moorland, with the brown river as radius, and the high hills forming the northern circumference. There was not a sign or sound of a human being, only the plashing water and the interminable crying of curlews. Yet, oddly enough, for the first time I felt the terror of the hunted on me. It was not the police that I thought of, but the other folk who knew that I knew Scudder's secret and dared not let me live. I was certain that they would pursue me with a keenness and vigilance unknown to the British law, and that once their grip closed on me, I should find no mercy. I looked back, but there was nothing in the landscape. The sun glinted on the metals of the line and the wet stones in the stream, and you could not have found a more peaceful sight in the world. Nevertheless, I started to run. Crouching low in the runnels of the bog, I ran till the sweat blinded my eyes. The mood did not leave me till I had reached the rim of mountain and flung myself panting on a ridge high above the young waters of the Brown River. From my vantage ground I could scan the whole moor right away to the railway line and to the south of it where green fields took the place of heather. I have eyes like a hawk, but I could see nothing moving in the whole countryside. Then I looked east, beyond the ridge, and saw a new kind of landscape, shallow green valleys with plentiful fir plantations, and the faint lines of dust which spoke of high roads. Last of all, I looked into the blue May sky, and there I saw that which set my pulses racing. Low down in the south a monoplane was climbing into the heavens. I was as certain as if I had been told that the aeroplane was looking for me that it did not belong to the police. For an hour or two I watched it from a pit of heather. It flew low along the hilltops, and then in narrow circles over the valley up which I had come. Then it seemed to change its mind, rose to a great height, and flew away back to the south. I did not like this espionage from the air, and I began to think less well of the countryside I had chosen for a refuge. These heather hills were no sort of cover if my enemies were in the sky, and I must find a different kind of sanctuary. I looked with more satisfaction to the green country beyond the ridge, for there I should find woods and stone houses. About six in the evening I came out of the moorland to a white ribbon of road which wound up the narrow vale of a lowland stream. As I followed it, fields gave place to bent, and the glen became a plateau, and presently I had reached a kind of pass where a solitary house smoked in the twilight. The road swung over a bridge, and leaning on the parapet was a young man, he was smoking a long clay pipe and studying the water with spectacled eyes. 
In his left hand was a small book with a finger marking the place. Slowly, he repeated. I'm guessing this is, it's written like a, like a bit of poetry, like in the text. But I think this is what the man is reading out. Slowly, he repeated. Oh, okay. Should he do it like Mm. as a bard or like, you know. Oh, yeah, like a really over the top Shakespearean actor. That's really gone a bit too far. As when a griffin through the wilderness with winged step o'er hill and moory dale pursues the Aramaspian. He jumped round as my step rung on the keystone, and I saw a pleasant, sunburnt, boyish face. Good evening to you, he said gravely. It's a fine night for the road. The smell of peat smoke and some savoury roast floated to me from the house. Is that place an inn? I asked. At your service, he said politely. I am the landlord, sir, and I hope you will stay the night. It's a well-read innkeeper. You were right. It is just a well-read innkeeper. (laughs) Ta-da! He was rosy-faced and he was well-read. Well, I am the landlord, sir, and I hope you will stay the night. For to tell you the truth, I've had no company for a week. I pulled myself up on the parapet of the bridge and filled my pipe. I began to detect an ally. You're young to be an innkeeper, I said. My father died a year ago and left me the business. I live there with my grandmother. It's a slow job for a young man, and it wasn't my choice of profession. Which was? He actually blushed. I want to write books, he said. And what better chance could you ask? I cried. Man, I've often thought that an innkeeper would make the best storyteller in the world. Not now, he said eagerly. Maybe in the old days, when you had pilgrims and ballad makers and highwaymen and mail coaches on the road. But not now. Nothing comes here but motor cars full of fat women who stop for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> he's, wow. He's got to be against uh, overweight people. He oh, has. He's a bit of particularly, fat creeping through, isn't there? But particularly women. Mm. He just has a yeah. real problem with overweight women. Hmm. And a fisherman or two in the spring, and the shooting tenants in August. There's not much material to be got out of that. I want to see life, to travel the world, and write things like Kipling and Conrad. But the most I've done yet is to get some verses printed in Chambers' journal. I looked at the inn standing gold in the sunset against the brown hills. I've knocked a bit about the world and I wouldn't despise such a hermitage. Do you think that adventure is only found in the tropics or among gentry in red shirts? Maybe you're rubbing shoulders with it at the moment. That's what Kipling says, he said, his eyes brightening, and he quoted some verse about romance brings up the 9.15. Here's a true tale for you then, I cried, and a month from now you can make a novel out of it. Sitting on the bridge in the soft May gloaming, I pitched him a lovely yarn. It was true in essentials, too, though I altered the minor details. I made out that I was a mining magnate from Kimberley, 
who had had a lot of trouble with IDB and had shown up a gang. They had pursued me across the ocean and had killed my best friend and were now on my tracks. I told the story well, though I say it, who shouldn't? I pictured a flight across the Kalahari to German Africa, the crackling, parching days, the wonderful blue velvet nights. I described an attack on my life on the voyage home, and I made a really horrid affair of the Portland Place murder. You're looking for adventure, I cried. Well, you found it here. The devils are after me and the police are after them. It's a race that I mean to win. By God, he whispered, drawing his breath in sharply. It's all pure Ryder Haggard and Conan Doyle. You believe me, I said gratefully. Of course I do, and he held out his hand. I believe everything out of the common. The only thing to distrust is the normal. He was very young, but he was the man for my money. I think they're off my track for the moment, but I must lie close for a couple of days. Can you take me in? He caught my elbow in his eagerness and drew me towards the house. You can lie as snug here as if you were in a moss hole. I'll see that nobody blabs either, and you'll give me some more material about your adventures? As I entered the inn porch, I heard from far off the beat of an engine. There... Silhouetted against the dusky west was my friend, the monoplane. He gave me a room at the back of the house, with a fine outlook over the plateau, and he made me free of his own study, which was stacked with cheap editions of his favourite authors. I never saw the grandmother, so I guessed she was bedridden. An old woman called Margit brought me my meals, and the innkeeper was around me at all hours. I wanted some time to myself, so I invented a job for him. He had a motor bicycle, and I sent him off next morning for the daily paper, which usually arrived with the post in the late afternoon. I told him to keep his eyes skinned and make note of any strange figures he saw, keeping a special sharp lookout for motors and aeroplanes. Then I sat down in real earnest to Scudder's notebook. He came back at midday with the Scotsman. There was nothing in it except some further evidence of Paddock and the Milkman and a repetition of yesterday's statement that the murderer had gone north. But there was a long article, reprinted from the Times, about Carolites and the state of affairs in the Balkans, though there was no mention of any visit to England. I got rid of the innkeeper for the afternoon for I was getting very warm in my search for the cipher. As I told you, it was a numerical cipher, and by an elaborate system of experiments I had pretty well discovered what were the nulls and stops. The trouble was the keyword, and when I thought of the odd million words he might have used, I felt pretty hopeless. But about three o'clock, I had a sudden inspiration. The name Julia Chechny flashed across my memory. Scudder had said it was the key of the Carolides business, and it occurred to me to try it on this cipher. It worked. The five letters of Julia gave me the position of the vowels. A was J, the tenth letter of the alphabet, and so represented by X in the cipher. E was U, XXI, and so on. 
Chechny gave me the numericals for the principal consonants. I scribbled that scheme on a bit of paper and sat down to read Scudder's pages. In half an hour, I was reading with a whitish face and fingers that drummed on the table. I glanced out of the window and saw a big touring car coming up the glen towards the inn. It drew up at the door, and there was the sound of people alighting. There seemed to be two of them, men in aquascutums and tweed caps. Ten minutes later, the innkeeper slipped into the room, his eyes bright with excitement. There's two chaps below looking for you, he whispered. They're in the dining room, having whiskies and sodas. They asked about you, and said they had hoped to meet you here. Oh, they described you jolly well, down to your boots and shirt. I told them that you had been here last night, and had gone off on a motor-bicycle this morning, and one of the chaps swore like the Navy. I made him tell me what they looked like. One was a dark-eyed, thin fellow with bushy eyebrows. The other was always smiling, and lisped in his talk. Neither was any kind of foreigner. On this my young friend was positive. I took a bit of paper and wrote these words in German, as if they were part of a letter. Blackstone. Scudder had got on to this, but he could not act for a fortnight. I doubt if I can do any good now, especially as Carolides is uncertain about his plans. But if Mr. T advises, I will do the best I... I manufactured it rather neatly, so that it looked like a loose page of a private letter. Take this down, and say it was found in my bedroom, and ask them to return it to me, if they overtake me. Three minutes later, I heard the car begin to move, and peeping from behind the curtain, caught sight of the two figures. One was slim, the other was sleek. That was the most I could make of my reconnaissance. The innkeeper appeared in great excitement. "'Your paper woke them up,' he said gleefully. "'The dark fellow went as white as death and cursed like blazers, "'and the fat one whistled and looked ugly. "'They paid for their drinks with half a sovereign and wouldn't wait for change. "'Now I'll tell you what I want you to do,' I said. "'Get on your bicycle and go off to Newton Stewart to the chief constable.' Describe the two men and say you suspect them of having had something to do with the London murder. You can invent reasons. The two will come back, never fear. Not tonight, for they'll follow me forty miles along the road, but first thing tomorrow morning. Tell the police to be here, bright and early. He set off like a docile child, while I worked at Scudder's notes. When he came back, we dined together, and in common decency, I had to let him pump me. <laughs> I don't think you did, mate. Uh, uh, I love old English. It's so funny. <laughs> I think that just means you know, like I laugh. Yeah, grill him. It leads to yeah. asking questions. Yeah. I laugh at sometimes like even the, n- the closest, not even, no, sorry, like the most ambiguous innuendo, but that's yeah. literally but like, that one nope. to do. I know. It's on it's the nail. Great. Yeah. It's great. Ah, oh, man. That together with a bulger and we're away. <laughs> yeah. I gave him a lot of stuff about lion hunts and the Matabele War. 
thinking all the while what tame businesses they were compared to this I was now engaged in. When he went to bed, I sat up and finished Scudder. I smoked in a chair till daylight where I could not sleep. About eight next morning, I witnessed the arrival of two constables and a sergeant. They put their car in the coach house under the innkeeper's instructions and entered the house. Twenty minutes later, I saw from my window a second car come across the plateau from the opposite direction. It did not come up to the inn, but stopped two hundred yards off in the shelter of a patch of wood. I noticed that its occupants carefully reversed it before leaving it. A minute or two later, I heard their steps on the gravel outside the window. My plan had been to lie hid in my bedroom and see what happened. I had a notion that if I could bring the police and my other more dangerous pursuers together, something might work out of it to my advantage. But now I had a better idea. I scribbled a line of thanks to my host, opened the window, and dropped quietly into a gooseberry bush. <laughs> Unobserved, I crossed the dike, crawled down the side of a tributary burn, and won the high road on the far side of the patch of trees. There stood the car, very spick and span in the morning sunlight, but with the dust on her which told of a long journey. I started her, jumped into the chauffeur's seat, and stole gently out onto the plateau. Almost at once the road dipped so that I lost sight of the inn, but the wind seemed to bring me the sound of angry voices. End of chapter. Oh, I don't necessarily know if running off in their car is a better mm. idea. <laughs> I mean, it gives you it gives you transport, but at the end of the day, like they've all seen you dip off, and it kind of like surely the police now are going to be more concerned about the fact that they've had their car stolen. Do you know what I mean? There's like a more pressing crime that's and occurred. He was, he was doing all right hiding in plain sight as well, really. Like they they went away. He could probably just yeah. Mm. Ultimately, I don't know if that was the best best bet for him, but you know. Well, and also, if they had arrested the men or like, apprehended them, the car would have been left at the inn anyway because they would have gone with the police down to the station. So after mm. they'd been taken, you could have probably could have jumped in the car then and taken it. I know he's, poetically it says he heard the sound of angry voices on the wind, but you don't know if mm. they definitely saw him leave in it. Yeah, it could be the policeman and the other men shouting at each other. Who knows? But no, mm. I mean, he's, it's definitely action-packed. I, I am enjoying the fact mm. that he is so hunted. And obviously by two different fronts as well, because it definitely makes it a lot more interesting. Still, how how would they know? I mean, obviously it's it it, it makes. I sense. feel like oh, even the police like, nowadays, like I would, granted, okay, soon somebody spends money on a credit card or whatever. But I feel like if if he'd been that incognito and cash only and whatever, even nowadays it wouldn't have it would have taken them longer, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, because and even with CCTV, it would take you longer than a day to track somebody down, and you don't have yeah, that. The admin stuff. involved, yeah. You can't just fly a plane over the whole of. The, I mean, <laughs> the UK, they, they, <laughs> the north. Well, they say the north. Let's say everything north of Manchester. Yeah, like that's a big. What, a, just look for like a guy in Tweed. Yeah. How many of them are you going to find on the moors? Field, yeah, the whole it, of the, yeah, How many people in Tweed are you can find in Scotland? It's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> they, there he is. Like, there he is. Like, there he is. Ah, I got you. What are you doing? <laughs> Sir, we've got seven thousand two hundred and forty-three suspects. Yeah, <laughs> they arrested the dog. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear yeah he's making some interesting decisions because again when he left the train as well he did that in like the most obvious fashion as he said i could have had a bugler and a brass band 
So again, it's like he is making these silly little mistakes. But then, hey, he's not a spy. He is somebody who's an average Joe who's been thrown into this world. So he is going to make mistakes as he goes. But he has worked out the cipher. So that's good. Yes. That's very impressive. I think the thing I'm waiting for is for him to actually start putting some sort of plan together in terms of how he's actually going to stop this thing from happening because right now he just seems to be on the run and he's kind of running a bit aimlessly he's very much let me get as far away from london as possible there's no there's no logic to where he's going it's just let me just get away so i'm kind of waiting now i kind of i'm I'm kind of hungry now to hear how he's going to start tackling the problem rather than just running we've had a couple of chapters of him just running yeah we need something else needs to happen and i feel like it's not going to happen well, I, was, I guess it was kind of him taking like decisive action here to nick the car. But mm. um, yeah, I feel like th- there needs to be more like stuff to happen around him that just forces him into action rather than just escaping the, the drama. Yeah. Which is in itself is not interesting for long. It's only interesting no, for a bit. Because you want to him to start actually putting some kind of plan into place and him, you know, nicking disguises yeah. or doing a bit of an Ocean's Eleven crew thing to do a heist. And maybe he's trying to find out, because he's kind of starting to investigate the guys, going, okay, one's sleek and one's slim. There's something in that. I think that's maybe his, if he knows who they are, these these anarchists or whatever it was, yeah, then yeah, maybe yeah. that's the thing. I don't know. Mm. Well, we're about to go into chapter four, and so I think it's our segments back. Guess what the next chapter's called? David, I went first last week. What do you think chapter four is called? Oh, God. It's the chase with the car. (laughs) Car chase. I was going to do saying car related. I was going to do like, Hanei gets a DUI or something like that. No points, I'm afraid. Um, Okay. um, I mean, we we weren't expecting to get any, so it's fine. I don't know if there's a pattern forming, or maybe this is this will inform future guesses. But chapter mm. four also begins with the adventure of, and oh, it's called okay. the adventure of the radical candidate. He's going to meet some really like far right or far left firebrand politician. Well, it seems to be anarchists who are like trying to carry out this plan, isn't it? Yeah, true. So they're more likely to be far left in this case. So they're anti-far. Antifa. No, that's it. Yeah, Antifa, <laughs> whatever they call it in America. I don't know. We don't have that here. So, Well, if you've got any thoughts or opinions on this chapter, you can message us on thelazybookclub at gmail.com. Uh, or if you've got any better suggestions how to escape a steam train, um, you can tell us on Twitter, and our handle is at lazybookclubod. And if you were to nick a car, what car would you nick? Tell us on Instagram. <laughs> at we are also on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash lazybookclubpod. And for the very low fee of $3 a month, you get an extra episode and early access to the episodes and also to the videos. You get to see how amazingly busted we all look today because we've all been to work. <laughs> Otherwise, we will see you next week for Chapter 4, The Adventures of the Radical candidate. Yeah, that's close enough. <laughs> the adventure. Just one adventure. The adventure of. Not, not oh, just the, the adventure of. Oh, just one. Okay, we're not taking too much of a detour. We've Otherwise, it sounds like the adventures of Paddington Bear. And we're just yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, very different. We'll read yeah. that next time. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see you next week for chapter four. Bye.